Linux Out Loud is firing up our mics, connecting those headphones as we search the community for themes to expound upon. We keep the banter friendly, the conversation somewhat on topic, and have fun doing it. This week, we are spouting off about subscription fatigue. Let's get into episode 22. Linux Out Loud is brought to you by DigitalOcean and Bitwarden. With me today is Wendy, the phenom of photography, and Nate, who's used something called OpenSUSE once or twice. How's your week been? Were you both able to enjoy a nice long weekend? I enjoy every weekend, long or short. It was a nice weekend. Magneto got a three-day weekend, so it was nice to have a little extra time with him. We stayed home, didn't go out anywhere, but... That's not all bad thing. Actually, I take that back. We took some fans back from when we had that awesome flood and we'd borrowed Mm. some industrial carpet fans. We took those back Saturday and actually visited with a few friends while the kids cleaned the house. So I say overall, I had a fantastic weekend. Sounds like it. I mean, at least it was productive. Did you get to enjoy anything on the grill though? Yes, we actually made some hot dogs on the grill and my husband cleaned out my smoker. We wanted to test it, make sure everything was working properly before we take it to the family reunion this coming weekend. And I smoked a couple of deer roasts and a beef roast that came out absolutely fantastic. Well, that's excellent. I had a great weekend as well. I was able to cook out with some friends and relax at the lake where I was able to unwind and unplug before getting into a busy summer school season. Yeah, we had a family reunion on the paternal side of my family. It's uh, one of those, I would say, weird things, but I actually like all of my family. There's nobody in the family I'm like, oh, I don't want to see them. That was actually pretty cool. And then I came to the realization that I'm probably the one that people don't want to see. If everybody is cool, you're probably the problem. That's what I determined this weekend. <laughs> no, Nate, you're normal and everyone else is insane. I could be. I've said that many times before. I said it once to a neuropsychologist too. He wrote some notes down. I don't know what he put on that pad of paper. Wendy, I understand that there's a new release out of a piece of software that you happen to be a big fan of. Tell me a little bit more. There is. I talked about this a few weeks ago, maybe a couple, but now it is finally out for sure. And that is Darktable 4.0. I did play with it a little bit in flat pack form. The downside is, at least I haven't been able to make it work, is I have OpenCL set up on my regular Darktable. So when I'm doing batch processing and the like, that my GPU helps with all of that backend stuff. But I'm not able to do that in the Flatpak version. So I didn't spend a tremendous amount of time playing with it, but I did install the Flatpak, open it up, mess with it just a little bit. One of the coolest things that has come to this version 4.0 of Darktable is the new spot mapping. So you're able to take a color that's not a gray object. So let me backtrack just a little bit. Typically, when you are trying to color correct an image or make sure that there's consistency across all of the images, you're picking a gray object, typically 50% gray on your card. I'll drop a link to one. So it's got a bunch of different colors on it, black, white, series of grays. And you're able to use this color calibration card, hit the gray, 
and then color correct your images. Now, even though all of your images may have been taken in the exact same light, if you are copying your history stack and pasting it, it's not always as accurate as it could be. This tool with this spot mapping, you can pick a color that's not gray, but a known color and use that as your sampling mode across your different images, which is absolutely awesome, gives you better consistency across all those. Extremely important if you're doing family sessions, wedding sessions, any of that, where you've got a ton of images that need to be processed and out as quickly as possible. I have to say one thing that I'm most excited about though, isn't even in this version of Darktable. They're already looking ahead, telling us what's coming to Darktable 4.2. This is awesome when it comes to prints. They're adding a CMYK channel mixer that'll allow you to digitally restore scans of damaged prints and film. This is so cool. I know there are multiple images that I've taken, especially old family pictures, and you want to correct them, fix the stuff, where it's been cracked, stuff's missing. And I've done that in programs like GIMP, scanned it in and done it in programs like GIMP. This is one additional step to make sure that you're bringing that document, that picture back in the best color representation possible. Super excited for that to come. Though I do love Darktable 4.0 and what they've added to it. This project has now been around for just over 10 years. From 3.8 to 4.0, there was 1,600 commits, 586 pull requests handled, and 123 issues closed. Way to go, Darktable. I love everything you guys are doing. I'm excited for 4.0 to drop into my regular repo so I can use it like that instead of as a flat pack. But if this is a program that you want to play with, go download the new version. I think it's one of them that is amazing to have the newest iterations of as soon as they come out and are stable. I'm really curious on how they're going to do that. The restoration of old photos, sort of a one of those fancy AI things that they're building into it, or how does that even work? So it won't be doing the correction itself. Basically what it's doing is because CMYK, that cyan, magenta, yellow, and K is of course black, that color profile is way different than the RGB that you'd be using for a digital image. And so if you're bringing something in that was printed, it used the CMYK printing process in order to create those colors. So now if you're scanning in to use it, you don't want to be using the RGB in your processing. You want to be using the CMYK color profile in those processing to actually restore it with. This sounds a little bit over my head, but if you know how to use it, that's awesome because then I can ask you. <laughs> it's definitely not something that I've played with, but I think it's really cool for anybody who is wanting to scan in damage prints, film, digitally restore some different scans. It's going to take Darktable and expand its usability even more. They're thinking ahead for not only what people need now, but what they can use in the future and just taking this extremely powerful professional program and making it that much better. Yeah, I think that's fantastic. Really do. And Nate, I understand that you may be having some struggles with Wayland. Is 
Wayland failing you or you failing Wayland? Well, it's a little bit of both, really. So I have expectations as to how my computer should work. I don't like struggling or dealing with things, but I do like to try new things. And I think Wayland is still kind of the new and shiny. And it's definitely where the puck is going in the display server for Linux. I think we can all agree to that. A lot of ex-developers have even jumped ship over to the Wayland side because they see the benefits of this new display server. I have decided to run it regularly again. It's kind of falling on its face a little bit for me. And as such, that when I run VMs, can be using either libvirt or virtualbox. When the host system is running Wayland, a lot of times, whatever I'm interacting with, shamefully, I do run Windows 10 in a VM for a specific application. And when I'm doing that, a lot of times the menus stop working, I'll click on things, nothing happens. And even the virtualbox interface itself will stop being responsive like the, to actually shut things down. So I have to go in the command line and shut it down manually in order to get it to stop running. So that's a problem. And then there's the same issue with libvirt. It doesn't seem to work consistently or I'll get like a blank screen or something like that. I've tried different display options. So that doesn't work for me there. And then a virtual KVM. So I use Synergy, but Barium or Barrier is the basically the same thing. That doesn't work with Wayland. So I can't use multiple computers with from one keyboard and mouse. That's a problem as well. Then also drag and drop between applications doesn't always work. Sometimes it doesn't recognize whatever file it is you're dropping onto it. Like for a web browser, specifically Firefox, when trying to upload like the thumbnail to Linux Loon or whatever, it wouldn't see that. I could drag and drop all I wanted, but Firefox wouldn't recognize it. Now it did once, but then it didn't again. So I don't know what's going on there, why it's inconsistent. I know they're working on it. I'm not displeased, but I was hoping it would be something I could switch to at least on my laptop or something full-time because it does really appear to be a smoother experience. And I still try it out. Like if I know I'm not going to be doing any of those four things or three things, not four, I'm not going to be using the, a virtual machine, virtual KVM or drag and drop onto a web page at all, then I can more than happily use it. But it's just kind of inconvenient at this point. I'm hoping I'm still rooting for Wayland. I'd like to see it continue to be where things go but it's just failing me on too many fronts. If I could offer you a suggestion, sure, I would say give Gnome a try with Wayland. I have had much greater success overall with my virtualization, applications, gaming, just overall system behavior using Gnome versus KDE Plasma with Wayland. I happen to have an NVIDIA card, which complicates things a little bit more. But if you have the chance, flip over to Gnome just do the same behaviors that you're using now and see if they happen to work. That way, if there are bugs or issues that you want to report, you know which group to send those to. Well, I would consider doing that if I could tolerate GNOME and I'd have to install it. Oh, that would kind of a hang up for me. I mean, I appreciate the GNOME project and what they're doing. I think they're doing good work. It's just not work that reflects how I like to use my computer. I'll have to wait for the KDE folks and file bugs in that direction, at least at this point. But I do appreciate the suggestion. There's also a project called Pi KVM, which will work in the same function. You basically turn a Raspberry Pi into a KVM appliance. Not sure if you've tried that yet, but it might be worth looking into. Hmm, I have not tried that. How does it work? I have not read all of the details on it, but basically what happens is the Raspberry Pi turns into a KVM appliance that allows you to toggle between multiple computers using the same keyboard, video, and mouse that you normally would. Now at home, I have a commercial grade KVM for my server rack that you know was a throwaway from a client, 
but I learned that a Pi could do the same thing. And so that's kind of one of the projects that I want to try next with one of my Pi units. That's interesting. I wonder how it actually works as opposed to the other solutions for virtual AVM. I will have a link ready to drop in the show notes for anybody interested. Bill. Nate. You got some more laptops and they just randomly landed in your truck or it was it sort of a sticky finger situation? This was a <laughs> rather strange phenomenon. I hadn't even had my new truck one day. I had nice shiny new truck. I went to one of my schools where they were getting some new devices. And before I knew it, the old devices just ended up in my truck, in the back of my truck. Like they had marched themselves out the front door of this school, opened my truck without my keys, and landed in my back seat. Those are some talented laptops. Very talented laptops. It was a coordinated effort of about 20 laptops <laughs> with the blessing of the school's administration to rid themselves of the premises and find a new place to squat. So they decided to jump into my truck. After probably an hour of negotiating with all 20 of them, we came to a consensus that they would spend a little bit of time at my house participating in some particular tests such as Ansible, some new distributions of Linux, and some other fun projects that I've wanted to play around with. And where those laptops end up, I'm not quite sure yet, but that may be a subject for another show. I didn't hear you say anything about installing OpenSUSE on them. I don't know if you would maybe give that a try, see how it feels, you know. I've heard of OpenSUSE. I may have read about it on some article, <laughs> but of course, I will give OpenSUSE a fair try on them. I don't believe these particular laptops have any strange esoteric hardware like what I encountered with the Fujitsu Lifebooks. So I have a hunch that Leap or Tumbleweed will install just fine on them. That's awesome. I absolutely love the Fujitsu laptops. I think they're a really cool piece of hardware. But you're right, they have come with a few quirks along the way in order to get them to work properly. So it'd be fantastic if these laptops can go on to do other Linux education applications, but not be quite so difficult to get up and running. I can always badger Neil to come to my house and help me configure and build images for them if it comes down to it. I'm pretty sure all you have to do is say that you're going to cook something, your wife will make some kind of really awesome dessert, and he'll be there to help. No problem. I mean, I would be if you were a little closer. Well, with the kind of work that you do, Nate, I'm surprised you haven't found a way to use a Raspberry Pi or an Amiga to teleport yourself places just yet. Well, I've tried, but it's that whole uh, matter energy conversion thing. Haven't quite worked out yet. This episode of Linux Out Loud is brought to you by DigitalOcean. Cloud computing can be, let's say, complex. But standing up reliable, affordable cloud infrastructure really doesn't have to be. At DigitalOcean, you can enjoy a comprehensive portfolio of compute, storage, database, and networking products that put your cloud infrastructure in capable hands so you and your team can get back to doing what matters most, building world-changing apps that grow your business. DigitalOcean also provides you with predictable pricing, robust product docs, and services that developers love. DigitalOcean helps teams regardless of size, whether you're a team of one to a team of 1,000 people. DigitalOcean helps your team grow with their simple, powerful cloud computing services. As a listener of Linux Out Loud and a member of the DLN community, you can get started for free. In fact, even better than free because DigitalOcean is giving you a $100 credit 
when you sign up at do.co slash tux2022. That's do.co slash tux2022. So again, you can get started with your $100 credit on DigitalOcean's awesome cloud platform by going to do.co slash tux2022. And we want to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of Linux Out Loud. Speaking of teleportation, we are going to teleport into our topic for today, which is subscription fatigue. And I'm sure we've all encountered this at some point where we look at our bank account at the end of the month and say, my goodness, how much money have I spent on subscription services, whether it's media, software, storage, or other products and services we didn't even know about. Wendy and Nate, what sort of subscription fatigue have you guys experienced before? Like you said, it's pretty nice to go through some of the stuff that you are paying for every month and be like, do I actually use this? Do I actually need this? And sometimes there are some great open source options for that. I know, Bill, you were talking about that before we actually started recording the show in dealing with some of the clients that you work with, vets offices, that particular hardware that they need to run their business, that they need to run their network is demanding some sort of paid service, whether it's once a month or once a year, and that can be really detrimental. You want to tell us a little bit about that and what the open source option is for some of those people? Sure. In my own home life, I don't have a lot of subscription fatigue only because I'm pretty meticulous in what I think I need versus what I want. So the only thing I really subscribe to is one recurring game app per month on my phone that I really enjoy. And after that, it's just a basic entertainment package. Yes, I have dealt with subscription fatigue before, more in the workplace than I have in my personal life. And That's really only because I tend to self-host a lot of my services on my servers and NAS at home, and that just basically is a function of being an IT professional. But where I see it at work are particular network devices, whether they're access points, firewalls, switches, sometimes even enterprise software, where if you don't pay their annual fee, you can lose the ability to get support or sometimes even the product will stop working because the product itself is tied to that subscription. And there are definitely ways you can work around that. Consider products like PFSense, Unify, or other open source network appliance systems like IPFire is a great example of that, where you retain ownership and control of the device without having to pay for that ever-increasing subscription fee. For small businesses that don't have a lot of money up front, those recurring subscription fees can really set them back. So one of the things we try to do is look for open source alternatives that will provide the same level of service that we know we can support as an alternative to that ongoing enterprise subscription. That's one of the things I really like about the open source, having the control over your software destiny. And I do contribute to various open source projects like OBS, like annually, I'll send the KDE Foundation or whatever it's called something because I use Plasma regularly. That kind of said, I like it because the open source model, if there are years that are maybe a little tighter and I can't afford as much, I can still give maybe something not as much, but I can still 
contribute something toward it. But I'm not tied in or locked in. It's more of a free feeling on the usage of your software. And then I'm not beholden to anybody either on paying that subscription just to be able to access features or whatever, because it is open source. I feel like contributing kind of prevents that rug being pulled out from under me. And there are some awesome open source applications or media centers when it comes to that kind of movie, video, watching, like Jellyfin and Cody. Those are both great open source projects. One of the reasons why I don't currently have one of them running is because you have to have some way to store all of your local media in a digital form in order to get that up and running. So I think they are great projects out there to kind of fill in for some of that subscription fatigue. But the downside is you have to be able to have the storage, have it up and running. And I know that's part of the reason why I don't have one going. I really wish I would have bought a server a long time ago, but this could be one of those places where at least a Raspberry Pi could fill in some of it. Like it doesn't have enough storage to have all of the movies in there but at least you could run your Kodi or Jellyfin servers from a piece of hardware like that that doesn't cost a whole lot out of pocket. And in your case, Wendy, where sometimes bandwidth can be a constriction, you might want to look at a Raspberry Pi running some appliances like Jellyfin, or you could also consider a device like a Synology NAS, which would give you that storage that you're looking for, and the Pi can run the services, and you can use the NAS for storage. You can take snapshots of it and send them off site, do backups, whatever you need to, so that you retain control of your data without having to also eat up your internet line. Yeah, that is definitely another advantage of doing something like Cody or Jellyfin for media streaming. And that is, even if the internet is offline, your network is still up and you can still watch your movies and shows. Because right now we are pretty much all streaming over the internet. When that's down, there literally is no movies at night. We have snuggle time with the kids every night before bed. They'll pick something that they want to watch and we'll all kind of hang out together in the living room and I'll get some loves and stuff, especially from my younger two as we watch a show. And we do have some stuff on DVD and I guess that's another thing. Like I totally should have taken and ripped these DVDs a long time ago because so many of them, I don't even know that I could actually rip anymore because they have been around since I've had kids and they're all scratched up. And having a digital copy of them a long time ago would have made that so much better. So yeah, while the hard copy wouldn't necessarily work, if I still had a digital copy, you could still watch those movies. I really need to get one of these up and running. We had Cody in the past but it was just running on my main computer and not really something that was accessed to the rest of the house. I have played with Jelly Party a little bit with Michael and some stuff that they've done on the Tux Digital side where we were watching some Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles all together, which that's a lot of fun, but you still have to have a subscription to those different streaming services in order to join and watch a movie together. Positives and negatives, stuff you have to set up to make it work or have a service to watch together. Wait, so does Jelly Party cost something to watch together? No, Jelly Party doesn't cost anything to use, but let's say I wanted to do a Jelly Party and the movie that we're watching is on HBO Plus. 
I could send you the link, but unless you had a subscription to HBO Plus, you couldn't actually join the Jelly Party and watch the movie. Right. Okay. I got you. But if you're watching something on Jellyfin, then everyone has to have that same movie or whatever locally. Exactly. And here I thought Jelly Party was a bunch of people eating marmalade and strawberry jam. I guess I was wrong. That's part of it, I think. I do think that's part of it. (laughs) You could do that if you wanted to. I know when we watched one of the Teenage Mutant Ninja cartoons together... As part of the network, there were some patrons in there. Ryan was saying he really, really wanted a pizza. But I mean, to be fair, how can you watch Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and not want pizza? I'll save the debate of pineapple pizza for another show. But I think the ultimate jelly party would be watching Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Well, someone had grape jelly, someone had strawberry jelly, someone had orange marmalade, and someone had blueberry jam. Mind blown. To match the colors. That could be interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Even playing that game that we did during Matt's stream with the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, I couldn't help but want pizza just because of just how obnoxious and in your face they are about pizza all the time. Not that that has anything to do with subscription fatigue, but pizza is just so delicious. It's the best way to get all those different ingredients in your mouth. Yeah, if you eat a traditional pizza, it's definitely a way to do it. And if you're like me, where you don't eat a traditional crust, your crust is made out of cheese, it's like a mountain of dairy. You have goat cheese, I suppose, right? No, that wouldn't work. Now, how does it even work? The crust is made out of cheese. Yes. So I've shared this before and I will share it again. I'll share a link to the recipe. And yes, I created the image that is on this recipe that I'll share. So the version that I use is mozzarella, cream cheese, and pork rinds that all gets mixed together in a double boiler, then laid out on a cookie sheet and then baked so that cheese gets nice and golden brown. Then you put your pizza toppings in and pop it back in the oven. If for some reason you have an aversion to pork rinds, like I know Sleepy Vince, his wife was not excited about that. I did adapt (laughs) this recipe from one I found on the internet and they used almond flour in theirs. Okay. So if you don't have issues with gluten or whatnot, you could always use breadcrumbs, but... There's a lot of that stuff that I couldn't have, and even almonds can make me break out in an absolute horrible rash, so pork rinds are the way to go for me. Gotcha. Now we're even more off topic. We absolutely are, (laughs) but I'm okay with that. I'm just hungry now. So one of the subscriptions that I do have, I don't intend on changing, at least not in the short term. There are quite a few people I do support on Patreon, although some of them are for entertainment purposes. Some of them are because I like the work that they do. For instance, this Hugh Bailey... I do support him on Patreon. He's a developer for OBS. And there's another developer that's York Van Haver. I support him because he is a developer for FreeCAD. And then another guy is Chris Edwards. He restores and fixes vintage Amigas for free for people. He does that with his Patreon support. And you can make an argument that maybe that's not the best for... There are a lot of companies that do make money off of such things. But he goes and he restores old systems that are basically financially impossible to have somebody else do the work. And so I appreciate the work that these people do, but I am also at the point too, I see that like I'm kind of at Patreon fatigue at this point. Like I really can't support anybody else anymore. And I'd like to be able to support more people, but that's just not financially feasible. I don't really have any other subscription services except for Netflix. And uh, I do have Paramount Plus. I kept it for Star Trek, but I find I'm barely even using that now. I'm probably just gonna go ahead and cancel that. Because I get more entertainment out of 
these individual contributors out there than I do out of Hollywood, you know, whatever, the big movie studios. I don't know. I'm just kind of at a strange place here where I, I feel like maybe some of these entertainment things are not really worth it unless, I don't know, maybe the content's relatable. Does that make any sense? Do I sound crazy? No, you don't. I think that absolutely makes sense. You get to choose what subscriptions you're paying for with the budget you have laid out. And I love that idea of saying, hey, these streaming services don't actually have the content that I want to watch on them. But this creator is doing great things. I love the content they're putting out. So instead of paying for this subscription service, I am going to subscribe to this creator and help them continue doing the things they do. I absolutely love that idea. And I think it's possible that we could probably get rid of a few more subscription services here. Downside is there's some that we watch all the time and then there's some that only get picked up every now and again. But when you want to watch something on them, you want to watch something on them. And maybe it's just time to let some of that stuff go and be like, let's just stick with the stuff that we watch all the time and then use that left over to support maybe some of these creators that we absolutely love because I know there's some that my kids watch regularly there's some that I watch regularly and it would be nice to give back to them so it's not necessarily open source but you are directly funding a creator and the things that they're doing and I told you I support a developer on FreeCAD a FreeCAD developer I should say yeah and I was actually getting ready to pay for the subscription for Fusion 360 from Autodesk because it worked great on Linux. I was using an OpenSUSE quite a bit. In fact, we may have even talked about it years ago. But then all of a sudden they did some changes and it stopped working. Like it was just became a big pain in the butt to even use. And it's like, well, you know, I mean, I would love to be able to support the company in continuing development of Fusion 360, but it's so cloud-based. They're not uh, developing it to be able to be used on Linux. And I was doing it in a kind of sort of hacky way. Glad I didn't sign up, you know, for that $500 a year or whatever it was for that because I would be out on some serious cash. I feel like the solution to a lot of that software stuff is just find an open source project that's working toward your goals. And instead of paying you know, for some of those closed source applications that can just pull the rug right out from under you, you support an open source project, you know, then at least maybe there's a chance at getting what you want eventually. At least that's how I look at it. One option that I've actually started to see pop up, literally pop up, are old school TV antennas, but not your grandfather's 12-foot monstrosity you would see across your roof. I've actually observed in my own neighborhood a number of satellite dishes coming down and a number of TV antennas going up. And people are using the cable that was feeding their satellite dish to now feed a rooftop antenna. And luckily, I live close enough to a couple of cities where we have some choices of cable. But almost kind of going back to last week, what's old is new again, and sometimes older is better. That ability to get TV over the air for your favorite network stations seems to be making a roaring comeback. And I believe, and Nate, maybe you have some experience with this, there are tools available to capture some of those broadcasts and store them locally within rights, of course. There are. In fact, there is a software called Software Defined Radio, they are largely used in the amateur radio space, but they are originally designed for picking up broadcasts so you can watch them on your computer. That is definitely an option. You probably have to set something specific up to 
save it to watch it for later, but I'm quite certain that is within your rights to do. It's no different than recording to a VCR, but using your computer instead. That is a really cool idea. I said VCR. You did say VCR. I would love <laughs> to learn more about this thing. Yeah, they're not expensive at all. They're really quite inexpensive, really. And it's a matter of just running a coax cable outside into an antenna. And then hope it doesn't get struck by lightning. Just as a reminder, Nate, Betamax is dead. Uh, it's not dead, Bill. It's in the witness protection program, okay? Along with all kinds of other tech that you enjoy, huh? Yeah, witness protection program. It's not dead. This episode of Linux Out Loud is sponsored by Bitwarden. Bitwarden is the password manager that we use and trust. Bitwarden lets you set up things like a pin to easily access your password manager, as well as additional authentication, such as master passwords and adding phrases to fingerprint security, all to keep your passwords safe. Bitwarden is the easiest and safest way for individuals, teams, and businesses to store, share, and sync their sensitive data. Go to bitwarden.com tux to get started for free. Say you want that premium account that starts at just $10 per year. What comes with that? One gigabyte of encrypted file storage, two-step login with YubiKey, U2F, and Duo, Vault Health Reports, TOTP Authenticator Storage and Generation, plus Priority Customer Support. Make the smart move like many in the community have and go to bitwarden.com T-U-X to get started for free. If you're like me though, you want to show your appreciation for this awesome open source project by signing up for that premium edition, especially since it starts at just $10 a year. Thanks to Bitwarden for sponsoring this episode of Linux Out Loud. Wendy, I understand that you are making VR work in Manjaro. Now, does this mean you're making virtual reality work virtually? Or are you making the real life just virtual in the end? Which one is it? Are we in the matrix? This is the VR headset and HTC Vive that we've had for a while, but I've never really said what are the different things that I've installed in order to get this to work. When we first got it, and I was talking to Matt, which he'll be back sometimes, guys, I promise, but we're giving you some game fun right now. But when I was first talking to Matt about it, there is an application inside of Steam that is Steam VR, and in some systems, it seems like in Ubuntu specifically, that is plug and play. All you have to do is install that and then your VR headset works out of the box. That was not the case for me on Manjaro. I had to go into the AUR and install some different packages in order to get that. So there's OSVR core, OSVR lib functionality, OSVR open HDM and OSVR render manager. I'm using the Git versions for all of those. Now, there is one package you have to install that also helps with that, and that's libuvc. You do not want the Git version of that application. If you do, and I can't remember which package ends up having an issue, but if you use the Git version of that library, it's a USB video device library, the Git version of it causes some sort of error and it doesn't work. So just go with the non-Git version of libuvc and everything works fine. I also could not get VR to work out of the box in Fedora 35. I have not tried in Fedora 36, but there is a great community member of both the OpenSUSE community and the Fedora community on or off 
that was working on trying to get some of these into Fedora. Now, it wasn't going to be initially in the main rubos. I know he was trying to get them in copper. I haven't checked to see if they're there or not. I currently have Fedora 36 on another drive. So once those become available, I need to go check to see if they're there, can test it and see if it's working on Fedora as well. But this is one of those situations where Manjaro just fits perfectly for the needs and it is the only one that I have gotten VR working easily out of the box. Yes, okay, I won't say easily. It was an absolute nightmare trying to figure out which of the packages I needed and then dealing with errors that were running on some of them and figuring out that I couldn't use the Git version of libuvc. So I don't wanna say easy. Let me just put it this way, a way that we could run the VR headset and I didn't have to install Windows on my main system, which would crush my soul. <laughs> yes, I understand that completely. So at this point, if you were to give it like a rating of success, you've used VR on Windows, correct? That experience of running it? We tried to use VR on Windows on my daughter's laptop and we had some issues there with the HDMI connection and it not wanting to actually go through the HDMI cable. It was just displaying on the main screen itself. From what we read on that, it was that it wanted an HDMI that was directly attached to the GPU itself and not one that was being shared by the NVIDIA graphics card and the internal Intel graphics. So we played with it a little bit, which was not a whole lot of fun to get it installed on there. You still needed the HTC Vive stuff, which I couldn't just pull that from the repo. I had to go to the website and download this thing and do that thing in order to get it all set up. So I think between the two, there were both aspects of it that were a little bit of a pain in the butt, but I did it for my children. They wanted VR to work. And this was how I got it working on a Manjaro system. And it took these five packages in order to get there. And I would love to see these packages on other distributions. So even if you don't want to run Manjaro, you can still have a fully functioning working VR headset. I think there's a lot of practical applications for VR. And I mean that in the sense that outside of just gaming, there's some other things you can do with VR that is quite valuable. So things like uh, if you're designing homes or large appliances, be able to see it in real space would have a lot of value. Seeing that there is at least work, making it work in Linux right now, currently with you, Manjaro, I think that's really important for the future of you know, a lot of things in the design and industrial space as well. I'm glad you got it working. That gives me a lot of hope for a lot of reasons, not just for entertainment, but you know, for those other reasons. That is really cool. I think that would be awesome if you were designing something to be able to step in and see. The kids have handed me the VR headset when they're playing Help Wanted. It's a Five Nights at Freddy's game. And the coolest thing about that is you can see the characters in their actual size. So it's one thing to be seeing something on your flat computer screen and you know it's supposed to be bigger or whatever. But when you're in this VR world actually seeing the size that it was meant to be, and if you were working on appliances and like you could actually, you know, walk up to it and have some interaction with it would be absolutely awesome. We have a quote unquote game. I think it's more of a science application is Universe Sandbox 
and it also supports VR, which is really, really cool that you can build these different solar systems and then in the VR realm, step into them and see how different planets are interacting and how if you throw this comment, this planet, whatever into the mix, how does that change things up? So yeah, VR is awesome when it comes to education purposes, building purposes, and all the things that you can do with it. So having these different resources available to everyone, regardless of their distribution, would be so cool. For the record, I did actually do things concerning design and appliances in VR for quite a while. So I'm pretty well versed in the ideas of the value of doing that. So there's a lot of value in understanding even the manufacturing process and so forth that you can do in VR to help with the design process so that you make less mistakes with actual material. Absolutely. And the other thing that you have hands-on experience is your Steam Deck. You've had it for a while now. Do you still love it or not? Oh my gosh, I am loving it more and more. So one great thing you can do with the Steam Deck, or one thing that's by the retro community, they have for Steam, you can run like basically built and modified for the Steam Deck, RetroArch. And if you don't know what RetroArch is, you need to play with it. If you like retro gaming, RetroArch is kind of the catch-all project that takes all the different little emulators out there and pulls it into one umbrella of sorts where you can interact with your games in one device. So I have run RetroArch on a Pi before, which is great. And now I'm running it on my Steam Deck. So very easily, I can go into the Steam Deck, dock it or play it handheld, whatever do like some old NES games. I have a few ROMs on there. They're all of things that I own. And you can save your state and everything else so you can go back to your game. As much as I like the original hardware, the original hardware is fantastic, but there are issues with you can't actually save your game. You had to play it all at once and then stop. Some have like gigantic passwords that you can input your things back or whatever. I'm thinking of a game called River City Ransom, my favorite NES game. But now I can play it on the Steam Deck, you know, with the kids or whatever, or docked on the couch and just play the other thing too is you know the super nintendo games you know that i have super mario world is great to play on the steam deck and maybe even most importantly are the game boy games so i had a game boy color spelled funny i just called gb boy color and it's fine and dandy works great you can pop in the cartridges and play and whatnot but there are some issues with uh, as neat as the old hardware is love the old hardware sometimes it becomes unreliable and because these are like a remake of the game boy they're not 100 you know awesome and you still can't really save your game necessarily. And so this kind of gives the that freedom and flexibility of playing any of your portable games you might have had or old games and playing it right there on the Steam Deck. It really is truly a fantastic device for that. Yeah, I'm loving it more and more. I got to write down some notes because there are the things I had to do that weren't really well documented. And so at some point in time, I'll be writing an article, maybe do a video, you know, if there's time to uh, configure things to be nice and smooth. There's some things to watch out for and so forth. When I first showed the kids Sonic, so they started with Sonic 2, they played it through an emulator on Steam, and I saw that my daughter was able to save the game and go backwards, was able to be like, oh, I messed up here, back up and hit it again. I'm like, that is cheating. I cannot believe that you can do that on this version of the game. I see the highlights of it now. I mean, for my daughter to sit there the whole time to play Sonic 
to from start to finish, which I have seen my brother do, takes a lot of time and dedication. So on some points, there's an upside of being able to save the game. I guess it's one of those things like my kids don't understand what commercials are. My kids don't understand what not being able to save your game and having to start over again at the very mm -hmm. beginning every single time you play. Yep. But there's positives and negatives to that, I guess. And they don't know what Saturday morning cartoons are, which is probably the most tragic thing of all. Yes, absolutely. Though we have shared some of our favorite Saturday morning cartoons with the kids. Of course, they roll their eyes at us when we say, we only used to be able to watch this on Saturday morning, or this is what was on when we got home from school. But they are getting exposed to some of those shows. I think my favorite part about you telling us about this is not only are you enjoying what Valve did with Arch on the Steam Deck, there is another application with Arch in the name of it that you are also giving <laughs> praise. Like this has got to be teeth pulling for you. I know, not really. Because I don't have to interact with Arch. It's all done for me. I don't have to worry about it. And the, the retro arch is not really because of arch. It's a different something else. The architecture of games. I don't know what it means. Maybe it just means arch, like what holds up a building. I don't know. I think they've made arch Linux very functional and I don't have to worry about using it. So they've abstracted that layer of irritation away from me and they've made a great experience of a device. Surprisingly great experience of a device. I would say overall, I am blown away by how good the Steam Deck experience is. I was not expecting it to be as usable, as good, as flexible as it actually is. So it's not perfect. There's still some work that can be done to like, you know, knock off some rough edges. But overall, I would say there are fewer rough edges in dealing with the Steam Deck than any other system I've ever used. And I've used a lot of modern things. I have a Switch. I have PS4, believe it or not. I guess they're the only modern things I have. But I would say that the Steam Deck is no worse of a gaming platform than the other two. I just find it funny, Nate, that you were hands-on with the Steam Deck, a handheld device. Get it? Hands-on Steam Deck. Yes. I see where you're going there. Oh my goodness. Here <laughs> come the dad jokes. I still have to put a beige skin on it, but I'll get there eventually. Bill, the first time that Nate was talking about this, you were also on the show as a guest host. And you suggested that I create a poll for how long... Steam OS will stay on Neat Steam Deck. That poll is up and running. We do have some votes on it, so it's not too late. Apparently, he's still running Steam OS on his Steam Deck. Make sure you go check out the poll, get your vote in before he makes the switch, whenever that is. See, it's too late for me because I assumed that he was going to remove it within one hour. So I've already jumped off the ship. <laughs> oh, ye of little faith. Yeah, he's way exceeded the time that I thought he was going to keep it on there. If Valve would have done a crappier job of the operating system, I probably would have switched, but they didn't. They truly did a good job. And I think that's something to be said for that. Bill, you've got some exciting things going on. I know you were talking about a cube farm. Are you growing cubes on your farm? The first time I tried to grow cubes didn't quite work as I expected. I took a Rubik's cube and I put it in the ground thinking that I would get a Rubik's cube tree. And I was very puzzled when nothing happened. But all dad <laughs> jokes aside, the cube farm that I am referring to was my attempt at setting up my Raspberry Pi cluster as a means of learning Kubernetes. And I have gone down the rabbit hole of figuring out which Linux distribution I should be using, which distribution of Kubernetes should I be using, which distribution of containerization services should I be using. Over the weekend, 
community member and good friend of mine, Neil, happened to stop by and be the voice of reason into my discovery and journey of Kubernetes and containers. And the advice that I got from him was, you should walk before you crawl and crawl before you run. And I took that to heart and I realized that I need to learn more about the fundamentals of containers first and how to interact with them than just jumping into the deep end with Kubernetes. So this weekend's project is more than likely going to be putting a different Linux distribution on each of my Raspberry Pis with a different type of containerization technology so that I can make a good comparison and find out what suits my needs best long term. I think the part that interests me most in your list of things you're doing is some sort of a Macintosh Pi thing you're doing as well. That doesn't sound anything like the other projects. How is that related? I love Raspberry Pis and I just think that they're so ubiquitous and flexible in what you can do with them. I've used Raspberry Pis as VPN appliances. I've used them to run retro gaming platforms. But this time I stumbled upon something kind of cool that plucked the heartstrings of my childhood. That particular project I found on a site called Hackster where someone took a Raspberry Pi and turned it into an emulated classic Apple Macintosh environment. Now, I happen to grow up in a family of all Mac users, and I mean that by saying I go back to the Mac Plus and Mac Classic era and have had Apple products since then just because it's something that I've known and used for over 30 years now. So this particular individual has found a way to turn a Raspberry Pi into a Mac Classic emulator. And so one of my Raspberry Pis, it'll probably be my three, because this project doesn't work on the four, will be turned into a retro Mac where I hope to browse the web, play some games, create some text documents, and have fun with some of the software that I used to own and use as a kid. How far I get with it, I'm not sure yet, but as long as I have time to tackle that this weekend, I think I'm just going to have to give that a try. The nostalgia stuff is always so much fun. We installed DOSBox just because I wanted the kids to be able to play Oregon Trail like I played in school. Nate's had some fun using some different games in DOSBox. Even loading up Windows 3.1.1 for fun. Yeah, so if you find nostalgia in some of the old Mac stuff, more power to you. And that's so awesome that someone was able to get that working on a Pi 3. I've used a little bit of DOSBox too, and I found that you can do some neat things with it. But the idea of putting Ryan in a box was a little weird. <laughs> DOS geek, DOS box. I don't know. There's times when we're playing games with him, especially where it's like one-on-one -on -one type stuff or one against everybody else playing. That would be kind of nice to put Ryan in a box. Oh, poor Ryan. Except not poor Ryan. When the guy hollers time out when you're playing a game together, first person shooter game together, and he doesn't actually mean it. He just wants you to stop moving so he can shoot you. I no longer have any sympathy for him. Let's stick him in a box. <laughs> now it's your turn to toss in your two cents on today's topics in our boxes. Hit the discourse forum, drop us a line under this video, or on the contact form by visiting puxdigital.com contact. If you would like to hang out with us on our preferred social media, see the links at the bottom of the show description. For other great shows like Hardware Addicts, GameSphere, Linux Saloon, and more, visit us at TuxDigital.com. Show off your love 
for your favorite podcasts and shows by visiting the Tux Digital merch store. Grab yourself some awesome swag like the gamer-centric I paused my game to be here shirt or join hashtag Team Wendy with some sinister Wendy swag. As always, we thank you for joining us. We'll be back next week with another awesome sode of Linux Out Loud. Until then, keep the banter friendly, the conversation somewhat on topic, and have fun doing it. 